turn to Revelation 12. And last week we talked, we, we, I preached um, verses 6 through 9, and we got to the casting out or the expulsion of the dragon and his aim from the heavenlies. Okay? With verse 9, which I believe is at the midpoint of the tribulation period, uh, the dragon is no longer able to present himself before the Lord after having gone to and fro in the earth and having walked up and down in it. You guys remember where Satan was asked, what, what are you up to? And he said, I've been walking to and fro in the earth and looking around. Where was that? In Job. So with the expulsion of the dragon and his angels from heaven, he can't do that anymore. No longer access to heaven to go report to God or question the righteousness of God's saints to accuse them. Now he's confined to earth. And so this heavenly battle precipitated by the man-child and God's divine protection of Israel results in Satan and his angels being cast out of heaven. There are those that teach this to have happened at the cross. And we're going to see today that some of the language John uses in this victory song make no sense if that's when this took place. And we need to remember that Satan is the intimidator. He's the deceiver here on earth. But in heaven, even today, he's still the accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. And we'll have to face him at some point, each of us, as a prosecuting attorney in the future when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So he is the accuser of the brethren in heaven. He is the deceiver and the intimidator of mankind on the earth. Okay, but there's coming a time when he's no longer able to accuse the saints in heaven. Praise God. Of course, those accusations don't stand because one drop of blood from the Son of God covers the sins of mankind those that repent and put their trust in Him. And the handwriting of ordinances, it says uh, in the New Testament, is blotted out by that drop of blood. But let's look at verses 10 through 12. Uh, the war's heavenly campaign. This parenthesis deals with the age-old war between Satan, the dragon, and the woman, and her promised seed. So national Israel, and of course Messiah, that came from national Israel. We're introduced to these seven major characters of the tribulation period as this passage is classically interpreted as we move through. Um, we saw the two great wonders, which are Satan and the woman at the beginning of the chapter. Then we get into the underlying cause of the war in verses 5 through 6. Um, and then we have the heavenly campaign of this war. This war has a heavenly campaign and an earthly campaign. And last week we talked about that battle, Satan's uh, offensive, the, uh, uh, the role of Michael the archangel, and the dis disastrous uh, results for the dragon and his angels. And so verses 10 through 12 is what I call a declaration of victory in heaven as a result of the end of this heavenly phase of the war. So today we could call this message victory in heaven, but reprisal on earth. And I'm going to try to get to the end of the chapter. Look at verses 10 through 12. And I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down 
which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. So we have this victory song in heaven. In verse 10, a loud voice that is in heaven at that time refers to, quote-unquote, our brethren who had been accused day and night before God by the accuser. So a voice in heaven speaks of our brethren. So this voice includes itself in the brethren, and it's in heaven at the time. So what does that tell you about the church? The church is in heaven when this takes place. This is after the rapture. Okay? As the accuser is cast down, the church is there to behold it in heaven. He's there accusing him. And that, that ministry of accusation, you could call it, ends with a climactic event. Or after one final attempt at accusation where the church is concerned, he's cast out. We'll get to that in a moment. Satan's two primary activities. He's the deceiver of the world. He deceives those that dwell on the earth. And he accuses the brethren in heaven before the Lord. It says in, in both day and night. And this is exactly what he does in the book of Job. In Job, we see a picture of what Satan does constantly in heaven regarding the saints here on earth. Accuses them day and night. Day and night. Now remember, Satan is not omnipresent like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He can't be in more than one place at a time. That's why he has angels to do his bidding. So when you go around and say, Satan tempted me, Satan probably doesn't even, never even tempted you. Okay? There's bigger fish that are a threat to his kingdom. We want to be such a threat that he himself comes to, 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 to bother us, but the likelihood is any temptation or any uh, um, spiritual warfare you've encountered involved his angels or his minions. Okay, because Satan is day and night in heaven accusing the brethren, the dragon. And he's got minions and angels that work for him here on earth. He has roles to play. Uh, he actually counterfeits the incarnation of Christ when he himself incarnates the beast or antichrist. Okay, so, but Satan's not omnipresent like our Lord. But two primary activities, deceiving the world here on earth and accusing the brethren personally in heaven before the Lord. When his role of accusing is squelched, this is when the kingdom comes. We see that here in verse 12. Now, in other words, right now, Satan having been cast out, is come salvation and strength and the kingdom. So when does the kingdom come? It comes when Satan is cast out of heaven. So if we are living in the kingdom now as the post-tribbers and the amillennialist and replacement theology people teach, then that means Satan's already been cast out of heaven. And that means it had to happen back at the cross. But the problem with that is Satan here is called the accuser of our brethren. Who is the brethren? It's the church. 
The church didn't start until Pentecost. And so who would he have been accusing before the cross? Makes no sense. But if we understand that Christ rules and reigns in the hearts of His people now, spiritually, but that the Scriptures speak literally when they talk of a physical coming kingdom, then all this comes together. When Satan is cast out, that's when the kingdom comes. Right here. If the kingdom is now and the accuser was cast down in the past, then our brethren in this passage makes no sense. There's no brethren until the church is instituted by Christ. And then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. I believe Satan, I mean, I believe Jesus in another place describes this very event. And he describes it in a different type of language and focuses more on the relationship to the brethren uh, there in heaven. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22. I believe Jesus describes this casting out in a slightly different, from a slightly different perspective. What we see there in Revelation with the casting out of the dragon, Jesus speaks of in terms of a wedding feast. Matthew 22, I'm going to read this parable, the first 14 verses. Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. When you see kingdom of heaven in the Gospels, this is talking about the literal physical kingdom that's coming. Usually, the, 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 the terminology kingdom of God is emphasizing the spiritual side of that kingdom, a part of which dwells in our hearts now. Okay? Kingdom of heaven was likened to a certain king which made a marriage for his son, and he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and they went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king thereof heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. If we look at this verse and we understand the Jewish wedding that Jesus uses the, the imagery of which he uses in the New Testament, we have an interesting picture of Israel's history here in this parable. Now remember, Jesus is talking to the Jews. The book of Matthew emphasizes him as the king of Israel. 
Okay? And so in this parable, if we read verses 2 to 8 where the servants went out to bid people to the wedding and they made excuses and they entreated them poorly and killed them and all of this, this is Israel's Old Testament history being summed up as a parable. God sent His prophets. He bid Israel the chosen nation. They rejected Him. Okay? Then we get verses 9 and 10, and as a result of this rejection, the servants are told to go out into the highways and just invite whoever you can to the marriage. And they did that, and the marriage was furnished with guests. Okay, this is the church age. Okay? This is the wedding, or this is the church age, the rapture, and the wedding celebration of close friends during the bridegroom's time with his bride prior to the public declaration of the feast. Okay? If you remember when we talked about the rapture of the church, I, I summed up for you how a Jewish wedding worked. Um, usually there's a marriage covenant. It starts with the marriage covenant and the bride price that's agreed upon between the bridegroom and her parents. Then they, the, the, the prospective bride and groom take the cup and, and accept and contract during the period of betrothal. Then the bridegroom provides gifts for the bride. There's a mikveh or a, or a ritual cleansing that took place similar to uh, our New Testament baptism. And then the bridegroom goes off for a time, an unspecified amount of time to prepare a special place for his soon-to-be bride at his father's house. And then during this time, the waiting bride is consecrated. Okay? And then at some unknown point, the bridegroom comes in the night and steals away his bride. Steals her away. And when he steals her away with a company of his close friends, he takes her off to, the bride, to, the, to his father's house where he has prepared a chamber. And traditionally, there would be a period of seven days in which the bride would be with her bridegroom in the wedding chamber. And there would be a supper or a celebration there, a private celebration, celebration with close friends. Okay? After this takes place, there is a public marriage supper in which the wedding is declared and the public is invited and there's a celebration. And then following that celebration, the bridegroom would take his new bride and they would depart for a new home, their own, not in their father's house. And so when we see that the order of the Jewish wedding, we see the picture of Christ's plan for the church. Okay, And we see the rapture prefigured in there. When Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may be also, and I'll come again and leave you to myself. In my Father's house are many mansions. It's all wedding imagery. And that parable makes no sense apart from the bridegroom coming to steal his bride away in the night. The rapture. But with that Jewish wedding in mind, what we have in verses 11 through 14 of this parable is this quote-unquote private wedding celebration involving the bride, the bridegroom, and close friends. That's what's being prefigured here in heaven. This is the wedding feast. Not the public marriage supper of the Lamb that takes place at the inaugural of the Millennial Kingdom, but this celebration in heaven. So, after the rapture, the church is taken to heaven, at which time um, some different things happen, happen. And her time in heaven involves this ceremony. This, I'm not ceremony, but private celebration with the close friends, the saints, the Old Testament saints, the church. They're in heaven, a wedding supper. And as the guests are seated, a 
man is found in there without a wedding garment. And he's asked, what are you doing here? And he has nothing to say. And the king cast him out. Who is the man without a wedding garment? If the church is raptured and is in heaven, how could there be someone in heaven that's not of the church? Who is the one without the wedding garment? I say it's the accuser of the brethren. I believe this is the dragon. This is Satan hanging around after his last final act of accusation where the church is concerned. This is the casting out of the accuser Jesus refers to here. This is the casting out of the accuser from heaven following what the Scriptures call the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ before which we all must stand. Let's look up a couple of passages here. Matthew, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10. And uh, Jason, if you'll look up 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. The Bible has something to say to the believer about the judgment seat of Christ. This is not the great white throne judgment where death and hell are delivered up and men are judged before God for their works and cast into a lake of fire. That's not the judgment being talked about. The judgment seat of Christ is where we must stand before Christ and give an account. And our works are judged for reward. Those that pass through the fire are rewards that we can throw at the feet of the Lamb. Those that don't are burned up, yet we ourselves are saved, so as by fire. What kind of judgment is this, is the question. I believe this takes place in heaven while the tribulation is raging here on earth to prepare us for the coming kingdom so we can be assigned our roles and responsibilities based on our stewardship. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 10. We are confident, I say, Paul is writing to the church and he says to be absent from the body is to be present from, with the Lord. That scripture makes no sense if upon death your soul sleeps. Okay, To be absent from the body is to be present with God or with the Lord. And we all, believers, he's writing to believers, must stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Not the throne of God, the judgment seat of God, but the judgment seat of Christ. Christ is God, but there's two things being differentiated here. To receive the things done in our body, whether good or bad. What does that mean? Turn to the second passage, 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. Remember, Christ, Paul has already written to the Corinthians once. So they're already familiar with what's written in this next passage. 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15. This is the judgment of the believer's works. Our works in the body will be judged in heaven. And if they stand the fire, having been done with a pure motive and for Christ, 
they are reward. If they don't stand the fire, having been done from our own, for our own purposes and our own gain, they'll burn up. Yet, we ourselves shall be saved so as by fire. Okay, so this is a judgment of works for reward. And for, I believe, assignment of responsibility in the kingdom of Christ based upon our stewardship here on earth will be our stewardship in the kingdom. And so Paul's already written to the Corinthians about this and then he goes on elaborates in the 2 Corinthians passage about all of us appearing for the judgment seat of Christ. When does that take place? Well, it makes sense to me that this takes place while the church is in with Christ. Because when Christ returns and sets up a kingdom, what we see is the Matthew 24 judgment on earth. He sits on His own throne and judges the nations. And they'll be judged based upon whether they helped Israel during the time of persecution. And they'll enter into the kingdom. And then after the millennium is the final judgment. The great white throne, the one who sits upon it, the earth and the heavens flee from Him. This is later on in Revelation. And this is the judgment of death and hell. So we have this judgment seat of Christ. We have this courtroom in heaven in which our works are judged. Okay, In a courtroom you have a judge, right? Who utters the sentence or the ruling. You have a defendant. Okay, You have a defense attorney and you have a prosecuting attorney. In that courtroom scene, I believe the prosecuting attorney is the devil. He's the one leveling an accusation. He's calling into question our works for God, just like he did with Job. And he'll have a case where some of those works are concerned and they'll be burned up. But in the end, he fails because our works proceed from our position in Christ and His blood paid for our sins and enabled us to live and bear fruit for God. In this courtroom, the accusations are levied. The works stand or fall. But the believer is ultimately saved as by fire because of the blood. And then the accuser is kicked out of the courtroom and cast down to earth. The accusing that he does, as in verse 11 here is outlined. Let me get back here in my Bible. It's getting easier and easier to flip through this thing. It's so used. The binding's coming apart. Some of the pages are torn. What's described here in verse 11 is the accusing during the church age. It's during the church age that he accuses the brethren. In verse 11 is how they overcome him. And there's one last attempt at accusation and it's the judgment seat of Christ. And when that fails, basically Michael and his angels take the devil and his angels and say, that's it, you're gone. You're out of here. No more accusing. And then those dwelling in heaven at the time rejoice. Satan's the one, I believe, in the feast that has no garment. And he has nothing to say. And they cast him out. That's what's happening when this transpires. Verse 11, and they overcame him. Who is they? The brethren that are accused. We know this is the church because it says in verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. This is the church that overcame him by the blood of the Lamb subsequent to the cross. 
and by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. How do we overcome the accuser in this present moment? By the blood of the Lamb. When He accuses us of where we came from, we, accuse, we, we, we remind Him of where He's going. When He accuses us of what we did or didn't do, we remind Him that our faith stands in the blood of Christ. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. It's by the blood that men are made right with God. Without the blood, there is no salvation. I don't know what's being preached in half the churches in this country, most of the churches this morning, but if it's not the blood, it's not the gospel. And it's not salvation. It's the deception and the lies of the dragon. They overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. We overcome the accuser by the word of our testimony. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be always to give an answer to them that ask a reason for the hope that is in you. Be ready always to give an answer to those that ask or accuse us concerning what we believe. That's the word of our testimony. Be ready always. Don't fail the opportunity. But if you don't tell them the truth and you tell them what they want to hear or you beat around the bush then you're not overcoming the accuser with the word of your testimony. You don't do people any favors by hiding the truth from them. Tickling the ears. I saw a, a post this morning on Facebook. It was two images side by side. One was a packed coliseum full of people. And the one next to it was an empty church building full of cobwebs. Uh, dirty, looked like it hadn't been swept in years, just completely empty, an old cathedral sanctuary. And underneath the full Colosseum, it says, this is what happens when you tell people what they want to hear. And then under the empty church picture, it said, this is what happens when you preach the truth. And it's true. You either in this, in this day and time, a man of God either is going to have a limited message or a limited audience. Okay? We can compromise and get the people, or we can preach the truth and have a small audience. Well, what Christ commanded us to do was preach the truth, not get people. That's His problem. If the church is motivated by growth or numbers, it will fail. And the word of its testimony will not overcome the accusations of the accuser. And it says here in verse 11, not only by the blood of the Lamb, but by the word of their testimony and the fact that they love not this world and their earthly life unto an unwillingness to let go or a clinching to retain. If we love our earthly life, it's in our nature to survive. That's the way God created human beings. It's our nature to try as best as we can to survive and to live. Even Paul was in a great strait. He said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, but I know it's needful for me to stay for your sakes. He wrote, uh, I believe, to the Corinthians. But if we love our lives so much that we're unwilling to let it go, or we're clamoring to retain it, that's not loving our lives unto the death. Mark 8.35 is very clear. 
And a lot of people that claim the name of Christ today should heed these blunt words of Jesus. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Those that try to hold on to what they can't keep will lose it. But whosoever shall lose his sake for my sake, lose his life for my sake and the gospels. You know, don't tell me losing your life for Christ doesn't involve the gospel. Jesus says it does. For my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Religion can't understand that. Religious practitioners are full of fear when they're faced with death and they do everything in their power to hold on to this earthly life. Those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb are willing to let it go when God's ready to take it. In fact, in Isaiah, there's a passage in there that talks about the righteous perishing. And it's, it's cause for sadness, but nobody ever takes time to consider that Christ or God is delivering them from wrath to come. People that practice religion can't understand those things because they're tied to this earth. We overcome the accuser by not being tied to this earth. We're faithful stewards with what God gives us, but we're not trying to grasp and hold on to something that we can't retain. They overcame Him. Who are they in verse 11? It's the church. This is a summary of the church age. Okay, The church is in heaven, verse 10, rejoicing because the accuser who has accused them one last time at the judgment seat of, the, of Christ is now cast down. And those that behold Him cast down, the church in heaven overcame Him. They overcame Him by these things in verse 11 that characterize the New Testament church from Pentecost to the present day. The church age summed up in verse 11. And then verse 12, Therefore, rejoice you heavens and ye that dwell in them. Okay, so at the time this rejoicing takes place, there are people in heaven connected to what's listed in verse 11, and they are dwelling in heaven. They're living in heaven at that time. In fact, there's a contrast drawn here in verse 12 between those that dwell in the heavens, ye that dwell in the heaven, versus the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. That word dwell, ye that dwell in them, in the heavens in verse 12, is a word that in the original language means to occupy as in a mansion or a large house. It means to dwell or live in a large mansion. What did Jesus say in John 14? In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Those dwelling in those mansions rejoice at this time because at this time they're living in heaven. Another subtle proof that the church is in heaven and that the rapture takes place prior to these events. In fact, those that are dwelling in heaven, those that have been accused by the accuser, those that have overcome Him by the blood of the Lamb are contrasted with those here on the earth. There's those living in heaven versus those dwelling on the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea! For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth he has but a short time. 
The church is in heaven when this casting out occurs. Satan's access to heaven and his ministry of accusation is revoked. Therefore, he's... I'm not going to use that word from the pulpit. He's angry. He's angry. I know a better word in the English language, but I'm not going to say it. He's angry. He's ticked off because he's lost his ministry of accusation. So his wrath and his malice now zeroes in on the... Right now, it's twofold. He's got purposes and, 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 and uh, plans for earth and heaven. Now, heaven's revoked. His wrath and malice is concentrated upon the earth. He has great wrath because he knows his time is short. What is this great wrath? Well, we'll see it. Jesus describes from that point on what the earth will see is great tribulation such as it has never seen before. That wrath will involve war against Israel. War against the tribulation saints, those Gentiles that are converted during the tribulation. That wrath will involve forced worship, enforced worship of the dragon and of the Antichrist. Worldwide deception by miracles. Miracles don't indicate God all the time. Miracles will be done by the dragon and Antichrist and the false prophet. It says it plainly here in Revelation. Worldwide deception is part of that wrath. It will involve the physical branding on men of a mark enforced by the law. And the penalty for not receiving it is the death penalty. That's part of the wrath. Forcing people to deny God and Christ. His great wrath. The devil's great wrath. World war is part of that wrath. And then finally, his wrath is concentrated so as to mobilize the armies of the world to Armageddon where he knows the slaughter that awaits them. He knows the slaughter that awaits those armies and mankind that's drawn to that plain of Armageddon. And he mobilizes them to come because he wants to see men destroyed. He wants to take as many as he can with him. So his wrath is great in these last three and a half years in a way that's never been seen here on earth. The time he spends now accusing the brethren will be spent solely upon taking as many people to hell with him as he can. Verse 12, it says he has but a short time. That word literally means puny. A little bit. Just a short amount of time. It's not talking about 2,000 years of human history. As some people would interpret this passage, He was cast out at the cross and now He's been on the earth. Great wrath for, for 2,000 years. Yet we're living in the millennial kingdom right now. So it all kind of falls apart when you start looking at that replacement theology. But the word means puny. And it doesn't make any sense if this isn't talking about a really short period of time. What is the short period of time? What is the short time that he has left? All you got to do is go to the next chapter, chapter 13, verse 5, talking about Antichrist. And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. What's forty-two months? Three and a half years. We know that the temple, back from chapter 11, once it is desolated by Antichrist, will be trodden of the Gentiles 42 months, three and a half years. What is 42 months? 
It's a short time. That's not even the length of a single presidential term here in America. 42 months. Lot's going to take place. And Satan's wrath is terrible and fierce as regards the inhabitants of the earth because he knows his time is short. So ends the heavenly campaign. The heavenly campaign of the war is done. And it's victory for the saints. Victory for the saints. The accusations are done. They haven't stood. The saints have overcome Him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. It's victory for the saints in heaven. Now she can dwell with her bridegroom in the wedding chamber until it's time for that public announcement when Christ returns to earth and will rule and reign with Him in His kingdom for a thousand years. Well, beginning with verse 13, we move into the earthly campaign of this war between the dragon and the woman. Wars have campaigns. In World War II, you had the Pacific campaign. You had the North African campaign. You had the European campaign. There were campaigns that we never read about that took place in uh, Indonesia and Burma and involved the Australians and some of those folks. And there was stuff that happened in China and all over Southeast Asia we don't ever talk about. But wars have campaigns. In this war, the heavenly campaign is over. And now it moves to the earth. So when I, when, I see, when I look at these passages in this parenthesis here, I would claim on your outline that the earthly campaign covers the rest of chapter 12 as well as um, um, chapter 13 and perhaps uh, chapter 14 as well. So this entire earthly campaign will actually go through chapter 13 and 14. What we see in the uh, verses 13 through 16 of chapter 12, the, the um, earthly campaign starts with a failed pursuit. Immediately when Satan is kicked out of heaven, he pursues the woman to destroy her. And it's a failed pursuit. He's no longer able to accuse the church, so he specifically targets Israel. And all his malice and hatred are concentrated upon her. Let's read verses 13 through 16. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man child. Is there any doubt that this is Israel? No. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place. Now remember back in verse 6, God, it says that the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that she should be nourished there for three and a half years. 1260 days. So this is referring back to verse 6 of chapter 12. Into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here we have a failed pursuit in the earthly campaign. All Satan's malice is concentrated now on the woman. 
One final attempt to accuse the church, the saints, and to find them guilty before God failed. And so now he makes one final attempt to erase national Israel from the map and from human existence, which also will fail. Uh, Daniel, look up uh, Zechariah chapter 13, verses 8 and 9. See, all of these prophecies in Revelation don't stand on their own. It's all been written about already in the Old Testament. It perfectly agrees with the Old Testament. That's why it can't be anything but literal, in my opinion. Zechariah 13, 8 and 9. This is talking about what's going to happen in the land of Israel. Yes. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. And the third part shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold, as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people they shall say, the Lord is my God. Okay, when the land of Israel is invaded, and when the dragon goes after the woman, the Bible says that two-thirds of those living in the land will perish. The remnant that escapes is only one-third of those Jews dwelling in the land. It's only one-tenth of those Jews living on earth. That's the remnant. There are hard times coming for Israel. Many will perish, but she will not be extinguished. God said that He would take that third part living in the land. He would bring them through the fire and He would refine them. And His work with them in this refinement would cause them to recognize that He is the Lord their God. So this refining, when God takes gives this woman wings of an eagle and takes her to a special place to protect her from the dragon is a time when Israel will finally wake up and be messianic as a nation. The transition from secular to religious will culminate when they recognize Jesus Christ is Messiah. Hebrews 12, written to Jews primarily, those wavering between following Christ and falling back on the Old Testament law, written to Jews claiming to follow Christ, says in chapter 12, verse 11, when speaking about the chastisement of God, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. National Israel is going to experience this. Grievous times that brings them the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And this is going to take place in the wilderness when she's driven from the land and pursued by the beast. Refinement that will wake her up. And when she finally wakes up and calls upon Christ and acknowledges her transgression of rejecting Him, He's coming. He's coming. He will answer that call. In verse 14, we have the refining. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle and she flew into the wilderness into a special place where it said she would be nourished, refined for a time, times, and, and uh, half a time from the face of the serpent. And it says this also in verse 6. We've already talked about that. 
what the Lord God did for Israel in the wilderness following the exodus, He's going to do it again during the last half of the tribulation. It's funny, it's, it's amazing how everything that happened in the exodus, it's almost repeated again for Israel during the tribulation. But instead of them leaving a foreign land to go back home, they're expelled from their land and they're led back to it by God. But it's very similar. If we want to know what this looks like, it's prefigured in the Exodus. Okay, Even this mention here of wings of an eagle alludes back to the Exodus. Let's look at a couple passages. Bob, Exodus 19.4. Jim, if you'll look up Deuteronomy 32, 11, and 12. And Eric, Hosea 2, 14, and 15. And Ronnie, if you'll look up Isaiah 16, 1 through 5. And we'll, we'll get to these over the next little bit, so just go ahead and look them up. It says she was giving eagles, giving eagles wings. What does Exodus 19, 4 say? You saw what I did in Egypt and how I bore you on eagles' wings. When God took them out of Egypt and through the wilderness, He bore them on eagles' wings. When they are taken out of Jerusalem in the land and, and escape to the wilderness, to a place of safety, God bears them on eagles' wings, just like the Exodus. Deuteronomy 32, 11 and 12. Just like an eagle, God led Israel out of Egypt. And he's, Moses is reminding the people of that right before they go into the land in the book of Deuteronomy. The same imagery being used of the Exodus. In verse 14 of Revelation 12, it says, She was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly. That word fly means rapid motion, guaranteed protection. She will be pursued by the dragon, but the remnant will escape. And her protection, just like it was for Israel in the desert when Pharaoh pursued, is guaranteed. She will fly where? Into her place. Verse 14. Go back at verse 6. It tells us there's a place being prepared for her in the wilderness of Edom where she will be protected by God. And now, because of the pursuit of the dragon and of Antichrist, she flies rapidly into that place with God as her protector, just as He was when she fled Pharaoh and his armies. Into her place. Look up, uh, somebody, uh, whoever has Hosea 2, 14 and 15. So God says, I will bring her to a place and there we know He will refine her. She will wake up. And the door whereby she went out, the door of Achor, which leads into the wilderness of Edom, she'll go back in there again. 
And it will be a place of rejoicing, not a place of trouble like it was in the days of Achan. And what is this compared to, this end of days event, the end of verse 15? Just like when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And then Isaiah 16, 1 through 5. Send ye the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness unto the mouth of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be that like a wandering bird cast out of the midst, so the daughters of Moab shall be at the fords of Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment. Make thy shadow as the night in the midst of the noon. Hide the outcast, betray not him that wandereth. Let thine outcast dwell with thee, Moab. Be thou a covert to them from the face of the spoiler. For the executioner is at an end. The spoiler ceaseth. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. And in mercy shall the throne be established. And he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice, and swiftly executing righteousness. Okay, we, we referred to this passage last week, but here we have Moab and Edom as well. Moab and Edom, it's all kind of the, the same area in the Transjordan, modern day Jordan. We have a reference to Selah, which means rock. In the Greek, that's Petra. We have these locales referenced as a place where that, that was to shadow or shield the outcast of Israel. It was a place where... Israel would be safe from the face of the spoiler. The spoiler, of course, is Antichrist and the dragon. So this is connected, this place, her place in the wilderness through the door of Achor that God has prepared is connected with Moab, the wilderness of Edom we see elsewhere, as well as Selah, which means rock or Petra. And so this is the place where Israel will be taken for her protection. And the people of the land will serve to help her in that day. The same people that wouldn't let Israel pass through when they were coming up out of the wilderness are now going to protect her and redeem themselves for that wicked sin long ago. Selah here means rock. And in Greek it's translated Petra. So this place mentioned in chapter... 12 verse 14, I believe, is in the Jordanian wilderness and it's somehow connected to the ancient city of Petra. Okay, I mentioned this last week, but as I was studying this week, I actually found something very interesting. There was a, an Anglican uh, uh, bishop in England in the late 1800s. His name was Dean John Bergen. He was the Anglican Dean of Chichester in 1876, and I'm familiar with him because of my studies regarding the text and the history of the text of the New Testament. Okay, he was known as a passionate defender of biblical inerrancy. He taught that the history of the Bible could be trusted down to its very details. He made a strong stand in support of the traditional text underlying the King James Bible, and he was an outspoken critic of the liberals the evolutionist and the secret cultic critics like Westcott and Hort who wanted to revise the King James Bible. In fact, Westcott and Hort are responsible for basically giving us the first of the modern English Bibles, the revised version which was introduced in England, the New Testament in 1881. So he was an outspoken critic of these individuals and of the liberalism that was being applied to 
uh, textual criticism and the tracing of the actual text of the Bible down through the centuries. And so I know him in that realm. In fact, I've got, it's a very hard book to find here in my library. It's called Unholy Hands on the Bible, uh, published by Sovereign Grace Trust Fund, and it is a complete collection or the complete works of Dean John W. Bergen. And so I've used these a lot in some of my writings I've done about the superiority of the King James Bible and the text behind it and some of my King James defense material. So I know Dean John Bergen and his works very well. He wrote the traditional text of the New Testament, the last 12 verses of the Gospel of Mark, the revision revised, the secret spanking of Westcott and Hort, the causes of the corruption of the Holy Gospels. These are all books I've cited in some of my writings over the years. But what I didn't know is that Dean John Bergen was also a poet. He was also a poet and he wrote a very famous poem in 1845 called Petra. And it was about the ancient city of Petra. And I had no clue. And I just wanted to read this to you in terms of where this place is that God has set aside for Israel's protection. This is the poem. It says, It seems no work of man's creative hand by labor wrought as wavering fancy planned, but from the rock as if by magic grown, eternal, silent, beautiful, alone. Not virgin white like that old Doric shrine where erst Athena held her rites divine. Not saintly gray like a minister fane that crowns the hill and consecrates the plain. But rose red as if the blush of dawn that first beheld them were not yet withdrawn. The hues of youth upon the brow of woe which man deemed old two thousand years ago. Match me such marvel, say an eastern clime a rose-red city half as old as time. And that was written about the ancient city of Petra in 1845. Petra is referred to, I believe, as far back as 2 Kings 14.7 during the reign of the righteous king Amaziah of Judah. Uh, he uh, won victory in Edom in the Valley of Salt. And there's reference made to Selah, which is just the Hebrew word for Petra. This was 840 B.C., that city, I'll go into some specifics this week, I didn't last week, it was a great commercial center going all the way back to the days of Solomon, it's believed. It was the capital city of a group of people called the Nabataeans from the 4th century B.C. until A.D. 105 when the Romans conquered the country and then called the province in Latin Arabia Petra. And that's when that name, the, the province of rock, became... Uh, began to be associated with it. Once the power of Rome waned, Petra gradually fell into the hands of the Arabs. And like with everything else they or Islam touches, it became lost to the civilized world. Islam wants to take you back to the Stone Age. Everything they touch is destroyed. There's nothing about Islam that advances civilization. Never has been, never will be. Because it's a devil's religion from the dark ages. And Petra is just another example of what happens to history when Arabs or Muslims put their hands on it. That's just the way it is. They destroy everything. Some of the oldest churches in the world, Christian archaeological sites in the world have been destroyed by ISIS as they've ravaged across Syria. They don't care about any of that. They have no care whatsoever. They're savages. 
And Islam is a savage, barbaric religion. And we here in America are so blind to that because this fog from God is judgment upon us. In fact, we were coming down through Charlotte yesterday. My parents took me out to eat for my 40th birthday and we saw a church down there. And the sign said on one side, we are a liberal church and proud of it. And the two doors at the front of the church, this was an old church building, were rainbow colored. Just the opening doors. And then on the back side it says, Muslims are our brothers and sisters. And so we have a bunch of homosexuals glorifying their wicked, filthy sin and saying we're a church. And then on the other side of it, they're talking about Muslims being their brothers and sisters. When Muslims at least have enough sense to know that homosexuality is an abomination and would have all their heads if they could. But there's deception. We in America are deceived. This fog falling upon us, it's from God. It's judgment. <coughs> and that's why we need not look to elections and campaigns and primaries to fix it. Because the lost society here has got a fog of judgment. Okay? It can only be removed in Christ. But when Islam or the Arabs touch something, it's lost to civilization. This is, uh, you may call that a stereotype, but it's a fact of history. And that's what happened with the city of Petra. Sometime around the 7th century, it was lost, completely lost to civilization or to the civilized world. And it wasn't rediscovered until the year 1812. Archaeologists found in 1812. As far as the layout of this city, which is a ruin you can visit today, I was hoping we could visit it here this next month. I'm not sure if it's going to work out because the Jordanians have changed the visa requirements as of January. But just like a crater in a volcano, this ancient city is literally surrounded by mountains. It's like, it, like, like being down in a crater of a volcano. And there's basically one way to get in. Okay? It's a narrow winding canyon that is anywhere from 12 at its narrowest feet to 40 feet at its widest point. The sides of the canyon are so steep that at times the sky is almost completely shut out and you think you're walking through a cave. The cliff sides range from 200 to 1,000 feet high and the canyon entering into this crater area is about 2 to 3 miles long. The sides of the canyon are lined with magnificent monuments and temples carved literally out of the cliffs as if some sort of magic put them there. I mean, it's unbelievable that these things were built by human hands. And Dean Bergen references that in his poem. In the rocky enclosure of the city are ruins of amazing buildings, tombs, and monuments. And we're supposed to believe we're smarter than those people nowadays just because we have iPhones and we sit around and text and, and uh, post on Facebook all the time. We're smarter than those people who literally built a city out of the rock. Give me a break. That's evolutionary thinking. Evolutionary thinking says that 2016 man is smarter than he was uh, in the days of Solomon. And then I look around at most young people that sit on their rear ends and play video games and wouldn't know how to plant a crop in a garden if they had to. And we're supposed to be smarter? What arrogance! We sit here in 2016 in our colleges and we stand in judgment on every generation that's gone before. And our history professors teach us that we're so much better than they. What arrogance! What arrogance! And these people win these awards and graduate with these degrees and think they're so daggum smart. 
And they're nothing. You get a degree, you get an award or reward at some kind of secular college, all that means is that you were the best at kissing the rear ends of the liberal professors. That's all you accomplished. It's not an academic thing anymore. What arrogance. But when you travel around Israel, like I'll have the privilege to do again next month, it's amazing to the, the architecture and stuff that was long before the days of what we have to make building so easy. What we have is built upon their foundation. So this idea that we're somehow smarter than people of bygone days, that's a giant LOL, in my opinion. But where Petra is concerned, the cliffs surrounding the city are carved and honeycombed with caves and excavations. Some of them is 300 feet high off the valley floor. And they're cut out of different colored uh, strata in the rock. And some, it, it's been said it's an indescribable and overpowering beauty, especially when the sun shines in there at certain times of the day. It's been said Petra is the only city in the world that can boast complete natural protection. And it's in this place of complete natural protection, I believe, that Israel will be nourished and refined and protected from the face of the spoiler. A wilderness refuge for Israel during the Great Tribulation. And what I find interesting is this place referenced in Revelation chapter 12 is the antitype. Remember with the Old Testament we have types and antitypes? The type of um, Elijah that would come was John the Baptist. But the antitype or the ultimate fulfillment is one of the two witnesses in the time of tribulation. I believe that this place referred to in Revelation 12 is the antitype of what we see in the Old Testament of the cities of refuge. Um, the fleeing of the woman on eagle's wings is the antitype of what took place in the Exodus. And this place is an antitype of the Old Testament cities of refuge. What were the cities of refuge that God commanded the Israelites to set up when they came into the land? Let's look at a few passages. I know I'm running long, but be patient with me. I really want to finish this chapter. There's some good stuff here. Matthew, if you look up Numbers 35, 6, and 7. Jason, Exodus 21, 12 through 14. And uh, Tony, if you look up Deuteronomy 19, 11, and 12. Old Testament cities of refuge. Paul, if you'll look up Joshua 21 through 6 as well. Go ahead with the Numbers passage. And among the cities which ye shall give unto the Levites, there shall be six cities for refuge, which ye shall appoint for the manslaying, that he may flee thither. To them ye shall add forty and two cities. So all the cities which ye shall give to the Levites shall be forty and eight cities. Them shall ye give with their suburbs. So in other words, Israel was to appoint six cities as cities of refuge, as places where the manslayer could flee the avenger. Okay? Exodus 21, 12-14. He that smite a man so that he die shall he surely put to death. 
And if a man lie not in wait, God delivered him into his hand. Then I will appoint thee a place where the thief shall flee. But if a man cometh presumptuously upon his neighbor to slay him of God, thou shalt take him from my altar, and he may die. Okay, so here we have God differentiating between murder, the presumptuous slaying of another human being, and manslaughter. God is differentiating between murder and manslaughter. Manslaughter is when your actions result in the death of someone either by self-defense or an accident. Okay, If a person committed murder, murder was to be punished with capital punishment. But if there was manslaughter, accidental death, or self-defense type stuff, then these cities were appointed for the manslayer to flee and find protection from those that would seek revenge. Okay? Now, this kind of brings an, uh, uh, this kind of is interesting because I often hear it said that in the Ten Commandments, the King James has it wrong. That it shouldn't be the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. It should say, thou shalt not murder. As if murder is the only type of killing God is saying, thou shalt not. And so the King James is wrong, and we've got better English now, and we need to fix it. The commandment's not, thou shalt not kill us, thou shalt not murder. Well, God here in chapter 21, right after we get the Ten Commandments, is differentiating between different types of killing. There's murder, then there's manslaughter, but when you go on toward the end of the chapter, there's another type of killing that is to be punished. And it's killing or the death of someone through neglect. Look at Exodus 21, 28 through 30. If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, then the ox shall be sure alone and his flesh shall be eaten, not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be quit. But if the ox will want to push with his horn in times past, and it has been testified to his owner, and he hath not kept him in, kept him in, but that he hath killed a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and his owner shall be put to death. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him. Okay, so there's a different type of killing that God said, Thou shalt not. That's killing through neglect. If your stupidity and your neglect, especially when something's been brought to your attention, results in the death of someone. Thou shalt not kill. Murder is only part of it. Don't murder in the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. But if your neglect has resulted in the death of someone, if you're driving down the highway and you're texting on your daggum phone and you go into the other lane and kill somebody, you've broken the sixth commandment. That's not murder. It's neglect. And so the King James is not wrong. People that say it is need to read the rest of the chapter. But the cities of refuge are specifically for those who have been the instruments of death in an accident. It wasn't because of neglect, but it was most likely surrounding issues of self-defense or just complete accident. You know, if I'm driving down the highway, I'm paying attention, but my brakes completely go out beyond my control and I run into somebody and kill them, that's an accident. Now, there are going to be people really angry with me in the Old Testament, I could flee to these cities of refuge and they couldn't come in there and avenge. It was a place of protection. So that's the idea taking place here. 
But the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, if your neglect results in death, you're guilty just like presumptuous murder. You know, in that case, the victim could be satisfied with a ransom of money and the owner of the ox could escape with his life, but the uh, neglect was just as much a violation of the sixth commandment as presumptuous murder. There were six Levitical towns. These were the towns given to the Levites. Three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side, where someone who unaware or unwittingly killed someone could flee. Read the Joshua passage, Joshua 21 through 6. The Lord also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the, by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he that doth flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up unto his hand, into his hand because he smote his neighbor unwittingly and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city and unto his own house, unto the city from whence he fled." So the slayer flees into these cities and the avenger of blood is not allowed to pursue him and he is to remain there until the death of the high priest, at which time he can return to his home. Then it goes on to tell us that these cities of refuge included Kedesh, which is in Galilee, um, Shechem, the city of Shechem, which is where Joseph is buried today, it's in the West Bank, and Hebron which is in the wilderness of Judea today in the West Bank, a very dangerous place to visit. Uh, we're, going, we're going there uh, next, uh, next month, Lord willing. And then on the east side of the Jordan River, modern-day Jordan, would have been the city of Bezer, Ramoth, Gilead, and Golan. So these were cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. When you had a manslayer, an avenger of blood, and a high priest. These were the three primary individuals involved. I think this points to what we see here in Revelation is this situation magnified and ultimately fulfilled in the Jewish people. Who is the ultimate manslayer? Not guilty of murder as a people, but guilty of manslaughter. It's the Jewish people. They were the cause of the death of Christ, though it was decreed by the Romans. They sought for the death of Christ. They assumed the guilt one of the stupidest things ever spoken in the history of the world by a group of people, of angry protesters, was in Matthew 27, 25. His blood be upon us and our children. For 2,000 years it has been. They got exactly what they asked for. The Holocaust was exactly what they asked for. So the Jew that wants to blame God and says there's no God because of what happened in Germany is just as much a fool as the one that stood in that crowd that day. 
Because Germany was one example of God giving them exactly what they asked for. Exactly what God said would happen to them in Deuteronomy 32. Doesn't justify it. You don't mess with God's people. But one of the stupidest things ever spoken, His blood be upon us and our children. Now, Gentiles throughout the history have persecuted Jews and have used awful terminology, awful racist terms like Christ killer and things like that as if they're the ones responsible for murdering Christ. Was what they did willful, presumptuous murder? Or was it unwitting manslaughter? What did Jesus say from the cross about His Jewish brethren? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. A murderer knows what he's doing. They didn't know what they were doing. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 about his Jewish brethren? He says this, uh, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, who Christ was truly, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What the, the Jews' role in the crucifixion of Christ was not premeditated by the people, by the crowd. It was premeditated in a sense by the religious leaders, but as far as the mob, it was just blind religious frenzy. Foolishness. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The Jewish people are not guilty of murder. Christ laid His life down. They're not Christ killers. Your sin killed Him just as much as anyone else. Shame on anybody that would call a Jewish person a Christ killer with such arrogance and self-righteousness. I hate that word. That's just as bad, if not worse, than the N-word for black people to call a Jew a Christ killer. That's awful. Wicked. Wicked. They're guilty of manslaughter. The Jewish people are a type of the manslayer. And for almost 2,000 years, they've been running for a city of refuge and have not reached it. Who's the avenger of blood? Who's seeking vengeance for what took place? The avenger is the dragon. He has been on their tail, hounding them from nation to nation. Therefore, as prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, we've had throughout the church age the wandering Jew seeking a place for refuge, constantly hounded by the avenger of blood. After 1948, they began to come back into the land, but they're still hounded and harassed. You can go to Israel today. Israel is in the land, but they don't truly possess it. I can stand up in the hills of Galilee and look around and see mosques everywhere. The West Bank is in turmoil. A Jew can't walk down the street without having to worry about getting randomly stabbed by some filthy Muslim murderer. Harassed and hounded. Until again, they'll be expelled by Antichrist himself as Satan's final attempt to erase them from history. In Daniel 11, when it tells us what Antichrist will do and where he will conquer, it says that the wilderness of Edom and Moab and the children of Ammon, modern-day Jordan, will not be conquered. And it's there that the woman, the Jewish people, will flee and find safety in a city of refuge. Not until the death of the high priest, but until the return of the high priest from heaven, who as the King Christ Messiah will deliver her from the avenger of blood and allow her to return to her home from her city of refuge. So I think it's interesting how we have an example 
of what God laid out for the Jewish people there in the land. The ultimate city of refuge. The ultimate manslayer fleeing the avenger of blood until the return of the high priest who will rescue her and allow her to go home. It says that in her place, which I believe is associated with Petra, she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Nourished. If you go back in the Old Testament, God reminds the Jewish people of how He nourished them in the wilderness. What did not wax old during those 40 years? Their clothes. What did not happen to their feet? They didn't, their shoes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. When they were hungry, what did God give them? Manna from heaven. When they were thirsty, water came from the rock. And that rock was Christ, Paul says. God nourished them in the wilderness. When you get to the book of Nehemiah and the people are gathered together with the Levites to confess and repent of their national sins before God, they are reminded, the Levites are reminded or they remind the people of how God nourished Israel in the wilderness. In Judaism today, the main focus in their religion is still the Exodus. That's what it, Everything's about the Exodus. Everything's about the Torah. You know, they don't even hardly know anything about what's written in the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. For most Jews, religious Jews, Isaiah is a foreign book. They don't read it themselves. They just listen to the rabbis and take what they say at face value. But the main focus of Judaism today is the Exodus and how God delivered them and cared for them. But Jeremiah tells us there's coming a day when it'll no longer be about the Lord who delivered us out of Egypt. It'll be about the Lord who brought us back in land. And so, what happens here with the woman in the tribulation, her nourishment, her protection from the dragon, and her return to the land is going to replace the exodus in human history in terms of God's deliverance of His people. That will be what they rejoice about in the millennium. No longer the exodus. That's the thing of the past. But the return. And God's going to nourish these, His people just like He did in the wilderness. It says for a time and times and a half a time. So what's a time? One times two, that's three and a half a time. Three and a half. This is a poetic reference to three and a half years, which we have referenced back in verse 6, 1,203 score days. And if you go to Daniel 7.25, you have this uh, phrase, a, times, uh, a time times and the dividing of time in terms of the reign of the Antichrist or the Great Tribulation. So it all agrees. Three and a half years here. Nourished for a time and times and half a time where? From the face of the serpent. That passage that was read earlier from Isaiah 16 that mentions Petra, God says, Be thou a covert from the face of the spoiler. Who's the spoiler? The serpent. Amazing how Revelation agrees with the, uh, the prophets. No contradiction. In verse 14, we have this fleeing into the wilderness. It's what Isaiah calls a great forsaking in Isaiah 6. The great prophecy of blindness against the Jewish people is in Isaiah chapter 6. In fact, Jesus refers to it as the cause for the blindness of the Jews in His day. Paul refers to it at the end of the book of Acts as the cause for the blindness of the Jews in Rome. And then later talks about the veil that's over the eyes of the Jew when he reads Moses. 
It's blindness. It was a prophecy given in Isaiah 6 that Israel would be blinded. In verse 9, it says, the prophet said, or God says to the prophet, Go and tell this people, Hear you indeed, but understand not. And see you indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy. And shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their heart and convert and be healed. So in other words, blind. Israel will be blinded. This was still in effect in Jesus' day. It was still in effect in Paul's day. It's still effect, uh, in effect today in terms of national Israel. God always has a remnant and that veil is taken away in Christ with Jews that come to Christ and are part of the church, which is Jew and Gentile together. But that blindness is still upon Israel. And when does that blindness get removed? Isaiah asked God in verse 11, Lord, how long? How long will this blindness last? And he answered, until the cities be with, wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate and the Lord have removed far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tent and it shall return. And then it says we'll become a holy seed. This prophecy ends, this blindness ends when there's a great forsaking in the land. When Israel is given the wings of an eagle and flies into the wilderness, that's the great forsaking. That's when the veil is lifted. That's when God refines her in that wilderness and opens her eyes. And then when her eyes are open and she calls for Christ, He comes and rescues her and takes her into the land. All Israel shall be saved. It's a third of the people dwelling in the land. As Isaiah says here, it's a tenth. The remnant's a tenth. A third dwelling in the land is a tenth in terms of the Jewish people on the whole earth. The great forsaking. So in this place of refuge, that prophecy of Isaiah will come to a close. That blindness will be lifted. And God will do exactly what He said He was going to do. In verse 15 it said, The serpent pursues her, just like Pharaoh pursued Israel into the wilderness. The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. I think of Pharaoh and his armies. Like a flood, they followed Israel. They had their backs up against the Red Sea. And God, Moses told the people, stand still. God's going to fight for you. And then he split the waters of the wet Red Sea. They walked through on the other side. Pharaoh and his chariots and his armies pursued. And what happened? What swallowed them up? The waters, the sea, swallowed them up. The flood was swallowed up and Israel was saved. Is this a literal flood of water here that Satan sends out to flood out that canyon? Perhaps. Is it a reference to his armies or those he sends after her to besiege her in the wilderness? Perhaps. But notwithstanding, it's an overwhelming flood. It's a last-ditch attempt to extinguish Israel and it's going to require supernatural deliverance. And we see that here. It says the earth... Help the woman in verse 16. And she opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. When the enemy comes to us as a flood, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard against him. When the dragon comes after the people of Israel like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard 
against him. The dragon is the prince of the power of the air, the Bible says, of the devil in the New Testament. He sends out a flood. He's allowed to manipulate and use the weather of the world, but the earth is not his. The earth is God's. He's the God of this world, the world systems. He's the prince of the power of the air. He uses the weather of the world to deceive and to manipulate. But the earth is the Lord's. And it's the earth that helps the woman. Psalm 24.1 The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm almost finished. Let's look at one more passage. Number 16. When I hear about the earth opening up and swallowing the flood sent out by the dragon, I'm reminded of a story in the Old Testament involving some rebels that tried to overthrow Moses and Aaron and their leadership that God had appointed. Number 16. Verse 28. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own mind. If these men, in other words, these rebels that were questioning his leadership and trying to convince the people to throw him out so they could lead, if these men die the death of all men, the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up. And their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit. And the earth closed upon them and perished from among the congregation." And all Israel that were round about them fled at the cry of them. And they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. So, so much of what happens here in Revelation 12 with Israel was prefigured in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. It's kind of amazing the similarities there. But Korah and the rebels, Korah was actually the cousin of Moses. If you look at the families, they had the same grandfather. Okay? So... They were first cousins. They had a family relationship. They tried to over, he tried to lead a rebellion to overthrow Moses and Aaron with Dathan, the Byram, and the people that surrounded them. God opened up the earth and swallowed them whole. And they did something that no one else has ever done. There's two people that have gone straight to heaven without dying, Elijah and Enoch. There's, two people, there's people that went straight to hell without dying, and these were those rebels... And then there's two that will go straight to the lake of fire without dying. Antichrist and the false prophet. When the earth swallowed them up, they went straight to hell without dying. Right into hell, the heart of the earth. And the earth, in like fashion, is going to swallow up this flood sent out by the dragon. Now, is that a literal flood of water and the earth swallows it up? Perhaps. Is it a symbolic reference to armies and the earth's going to open its mouth just like it did with, the Kor with Korah and the rebels? Perhaps. But God is going to deliver His people using the earth which is His to do so. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard against him.
In Isaiah chapter 26, God tells His people, Come, enter into your chamber, shut your doors, hide yourself for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Because the Lord will come out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. And it says in the very first verse of the next chapter, remember the chapters are man-made divisions that came later, that in that day when Israel has hidden herself, and the Lord comes out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, it's in that day that the Lord will also punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even the dragon that is in the sea. Who's the Leviathan, the piercing serpent? It's the dragon that pursues the woman. Who's the dragon that's in the sea? It's the beast that comes out of the sea in chapter 13. So God <coughs> protects His people. He made a promise to Abraham and He keeps it even until the end of time. So the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth and the dragon could not. He pursued the woman but it was a failed pursuit. And so in anger, the next stage of this earthly campaign is a ruthless reprisal. Because of his failure to extinguish Israel, there's people that are going to pay a price for that. And we see in verse 17 the onslaught of this reprisal that goes down through chapter 18. And the dragon wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The dragon can't get the woman. He can't get Israel. He can't get the man-child, the Messiah. So he goes after the remnant of her seed. Who is the remnant of the seed of the woman here? It's those that keep God's commandments and those that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who are these? Is it the church? No, the church, the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. The church is rejoicing. Who is the remnant? The tribulation saints. The tribulation saints. This is the fifth personage of this parenthesis that's classically interpreted as the seven, seven personas. You have the dragon, you have the woman, you have the man-child, you have um, Michael, the archangel, and now you have the remnant of the seed, which is the tribulation saints. In chapter 13, you have the dragon or the beast out of the sea, and you have the seventh, which is the beast out of the earth. These are the tribulation saints. We've already seen them in the book of Revelation. What chapter are they revealed to us? You remember? It was the first parenthesis we came to. Chapter 7. The 144,000 Jewish witnesses that go out, they complete the job started by the church where the gospel goes to the end of the earth and then the end comes. And the fruit of their ministry, it says in Revelation 7 verse 9, John saw a great multitude which no man could number of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues standing before the throne clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And then later in verse 14 of chapter 7, God, John asked, who are these? Who are these people? Or, or John is asked, who are these? By the angel. And he said, you know, tell me. And the angel said, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The tribulation saints are those that came out of great tribulation. They were slaughtered. Slaughtered by who? By the dragon.
who turns against them because he's so angry. He's been cast out of heaven. He can't get the church. He's tried to extinguish Israel. He can't do it. So he turns against the tribulation saints. Those that won't receive the mark. And they pay for it with their lives. They are those that keep God's commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Friends, if we have the testimony of Jesus Christ, we keep God's commandments. You can't have one without the other. We don't keep God's commandments to be right with God, but through the testimony of Jesus Christ and the Spirit to live in our lives, we keep God's commandments. We bear fruit in our lives. And it will be the same with those who repent and turn to Christ at the preaching of the witnesses during the tribulation. Now, these won't be people who hear the gospel and are familiar with it now, who are in church every Sunday and know better. Probably very few, if any, Americans. Because Paul says those that clearly heard the truth in this dispensation will be blinded. God will send them blindness. But there are people all over the world that have never heard the gospel. Even today, the true biblical gospel, perhaps some here in America, I've talked to some that have no understanding whatsoever. And when these Jewish witnesses preach, they'll come to Christ. But they'll pay for it with their lives. The dragon was wroth with the woman and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed. But even in this... There is not victory because the tribulation saints are seen there in heaven around the throne and God avenges them. That brings us to the end of chapter 12. I appreciate you being patient with me today. I still haven't quite gone as long as Matthew did that one time. (laughs) But this ruthless reprisal where Satan tries to flood out Israel and he fails, it Going after the tribulation saints is only part of it. This is actually connected directly with chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to the beast out of the sea, which is Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, which which is the false prophet, the sixth and seventh personages, respectively. And they are part of Satan's ruthless reprisal here on the earth. The onslaught, is against the Jews. But the commander-in-chief of this reprisal is Antichrist and the minister of propaganda is the false prophet. It's all connected and it all has to do with that age-old conflict between Israel and the seed of the woman.